first, just wrapping up kind of where we were last week, looking at various passages across Scripture uh, that encourage or give us the example to do this. And the last thing I want to talk about is the example of Paul. Uh, When you see the Apostle Paul's activities in the book of Acts, you get uh, example after example after example of why these types of conversations need to take place. So let's listen to a handful of those passages, and then I think the conclusion from that will be pretty self-evident. So who's got uh, 17 verses 1 through 4? I think that's Justin. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis that place Ampollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in and as was his custom and on the third three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Paul goes here. He has these kinds of conversations. He reasons and explains. And the Spirit does his work. And as a result, uh, many are converted. Acts 18, 1 through 4. Next chapter. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. New city, same story. Goes to the synagogue, reasons with them, uh, in this case specifically on the Lord's Day. And who's got 17, 16, and 17? Sorry, going back one step. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Reasoned with them every day. Paul gives a great example of going from town to town, having these kinds of conversations. Uh, That's not everybody's full-time job. That was Paul's full-time calling. But the ability to do that and the willingness to do it, the seeing the value of doing it, feeling compelled to do it in the places where God calls you is uh, part and parcel of the Christian life. Questions about that reaching all the way back into last week, for those of you who are here, all the passages that we talked about, um, any questions or comments about the Bible's case for having these conversations, the need to do it? You can't say this is just an apostolic. It's a good apostolic command. Nope. I'm not trying to say that, but I can't make that excuse, right? Unfortunately not. (laughs) (laughs) And again, the, the... The point of calling is an important one. God does not call all of us to full-time ministry. He does not call all of us to missionary endeavors. But he does call all of us to be in particular places at particular times doing certain things. Whatever our task, whatever our sphere of influence, whatever God has given us in life, this is the place you'll be. These are the people with whom you live and go through life. And in that calling, you have to have the ability and the willingness to have these kinds of conversations. Because I, I don't think any of us at this point would be so silly as to suggest that the people in our neighborhood, schools, workplaces, 
churches wherever else we go are not just as lost as the people in Rome, in Athens, in Thessalonica, in any of these cities. The people that we deal with are just as lost. And so they need exactly the same thing. Um, And most churches don't send uh, missionaries, raise funding, and send a full-timer to go to an insurance office to witness to the insurance folks, right? (laughs) But our church does send Justin, right? Most churches are not going to raise up missionaries and callings to send people to say, you know what you do? You're going to go be the covert chaplain for Delta. But our church does send Matt. Right? Your homes, your co-ops, your, your neighborhoods, your, everywhere you are, um, you are the ambassadors for Christ in those places. And so you've got to be prepared uh, and see the need. As much as prepared is believing that it matters to have these conversations. So let's, let's move to that then. Why, um, why bother? <laughs> what will these conversations accomplish? Now, many of us are wired rather cynically. We have a few optimists in this room, but most of us are wired pretty cynically. And so we say, nothing. Never works. Doesn't happen. Nobody listens. Right? Uh, But that is not what Scripture tells us. And, perhaps more importantly, even if it never worked, um, they could still be purposeful. The first thing that these conversations will accomplish is very simply that they will glorify God. When truth is proclaimed, God's truth in God's world, he is glorified. And when a person, any one of us, who was at one point a rebel against God's kingdom, shaking our angry fist against his lordship, you don't tell me what to do. And when because of God's power and grace in that person's life, they're able to stand up for and to defend and to proclaim his truth in a hostile world, that gives God glory. For you to speak about the faith and to speak about God clearly and truthfully is a form of love and gratitude and worship. You are declaring that God is true and that the enemy is false. And even if nobody in the room will hear it, that's a good thing. It is, a, it is good for God to be glorified. And that happens when Christians engage in these conversations. Um, second, uh, who's got First Peter 3.16? We've read it before, but I want to remember one phrase from this. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Ashamed of their slander. This silences the unbeliever. This puts the unbeliever to shame. Now, hear me closely and carefully right now, because I'm going to make one of my sort of typical uh, shocking statements, and then you need to hear my explanation for it to put it in the right context so I'm not misunderstood. These faith conversations, the practice of apologetics, are designed to embarrass the one caught in the lies of unbelief. It is a purpose of these conversations to embarrass the one caught in the lies of unbelief. Now, here's the clarification. It's not to humiliate them in front of others. 
It's not to make ourselves seem better and them seem worse in that type of embarrassment. It is to expose their sin. Last week we talked about intellectual sin. The sin you're trying to expose is the Romans 1 sin. They are suppressing the truth despite all evidence. So think about an example in your own life where everybody else around you saw something and you didn't want to admit it was true. You didn't want it to be so. And so you were suppressing the truth. No, no, that's not how it is. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to, this is not a stupid idea. This is definitely going to pan out. This get rich quick scheme is definitely going to happen. This person is not betraying me. Whatever it was, everybody else around you saw it and you refused to. You suppressed it. And how did you feel when the truth finally came to light, even to you? That embarrassment, I should have seen this all along. This was there to be seen all along. And I, claiming to be rational, claiming to be the one who saw things clearly, I was actually the one playing pretend, suppressing the truth and elevating lies. That is the sense in which we are embarrassing the unbeliever. We're bringing them to the point where they can no longer say that can't be true. Because as I've said from the beginning, what we're trying to drive people to is not faith. We can't drive anyone to faith. We want to get people to say the most truthful statement an unbeliever can ever say, I don't want to believe that. That's all we're going for. All we're going for is to show them such overwhelming evidence for God's truth and such madness in their own suppression of the truth that they are embarrassed and forced to say, I don't want to believe it. That is a heart that God can work with. right? That, that's what we're trying to get to. So when they say that, they condemn themselves. We don't approach this seeking to condemn them because we're not the ones who condemn them. We embarrass them into speaking the truth, which is, I don't want to. And by those words, they condemn themselves. Um, So our prayer is that at that moment of clarity, they're driven to repentance. Because you've exposed rebellion against God. You've exposed for all of their fluff, for all of their explanations, for all of their reason. You've you've shown that all of that is just nonsense. This is not about any of that. This is not about the problem of evil in the world and how can God be both good and powerful. It's not about that. This is not about free will. How can God be sovereign and I still have meaningful responsibility? It's never about that. What it comes down to is, I don't want to. I don't want to believe that. And that's what we're trying to get people to, uh, so that hopefully God would be pleased to use that uh, to draw them to faith. you got to remember that unbelievers, the nicest unbeliever in the world, unbelievers who you would much rather have a beer with than me, just <laughs> super nice, wonderful people, You've got to remember, no matter how nice and wonderful they are, they hate God. 
that's hard for us to reconcile sometimes. We think, oh no, they're just they're they don't they haven't they're not thinking about God. They're they hate God. At their core, fallen humanity hates God. And you're dealing with this person who hates God. And so no amount of dismantling their worldview, no amount of eloquent apologetics is going to make somebody not hate God. What you're trying to do is actually show them that they hate God. And then let them come to terms with that and see what God, uh, by His Spirit, will do in that. Uh, That's a point at which God is commonly pleased to bring people to Himself. That moment of clarity of what this is really about. This is not really about the intellectual superiority of atheism to Christianity. This is really about Christianity would make me change in ways I don't want to change. If God is Lord, that means I can't be. And I don't like that. Pam? Yeah, so it seems like there's kind of a spectrum. Those that truly hate God, don't mess anything, don't acknowledge. And those that say, oh, I love God, I don't love religion. They hate God too. That's my point. Yeah, my point is they all hate God. The nicest one, the one that says, I want to be the most moral person that I can be, but I will not submit to God's authority. Because God doesn't say be the nicest person you can be. God says repent. (laughs) Right? God doesn't say the standard is 86% holiness. God says the standard is 100% holiness. And when those two views, no matter how nice the person is, come at loggerheads, what the person person ends up saying is, you're not a very good God. Right? That's what you can force that person to. I don't like your God. My God says your 86% nice isn't nice enough. My God says that you only commit itty bitty sins, not good enough. Right? You, they do hate God. They can do it with a smile. They can be so nice about it. They will never say that out loud. They would disagree with you if you told them that. If you said you hate God. I don't hate God. God didn't do nothing to me. Actually, God did do something to you. Let me tell you what God actually did. God says you're dead in your sins and trespasses, and without repentance you will perish forever in the fires of hell. Well, I would hate anyone who said that to me. (laughs) That's my point, right? That's the most difficult one to me, because I think they would say, in the world sense, I'm a Christian, I believe in God. And yep. so, like, but I mean, yeah, I even go to church sometimes, and I even do this sometimes. Yeah, yep. I'm a Christian. It's such a great tie-in. It's amazing. It's like the Holy Spirit is in charge of things to today's text and sermon for worship, where Micah brings the indictment against all of Israel's rulers. So previously, he had talked about the judicial authorities, and he talked about the priests, and he talked about the prophets, and now he's bringing all that together. All three groups are being indicted in this morning's text. And what Micah says their problem is, is spiritual presumption. I go to church. I do better stuff than the real pagan pagans. I care about people. I'm nice. And so God is with me. And the prophet of God is standing there waving his arms saying, No, no, God not with you. You oppress the poor. You're greedy. You don't honor God with your lives. You say these things of faith, but what you do doesn't match it at all. God is not with you. And they say, Yeah, we are. I got the Sunday school attendance pen. What? Um, for them, it was the temple. For us, it's the attendance pens. Um, so this applies also to people who are worshiping the wrong god or false god, the Mormons. Yeah, like that's right. Who are really nice and great neighbors. Yeah, anytime you worship a god of your own making, you hate the true god because you're saying, my god is better than that god. And for a lot of people, their god is them. 
But for a lot of people, it's these human creation gods. It's idols. Uh, Islam is is an idolatrous religion. <laughs> you can be incredibly devout. For that matter, Roman Catholicism is an idolatrous religion. You can be incredibly devout and yet hate God. Now, you can also, despite the church, love God and happen to be a Roman Catholic, but that's in spite of the faith. That's not because of it. That's that God was gracious to to show you something that your church says is a lie. That's not super helpful. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, all, all non-Christians by their lives prove they hate God. So that's a what are we trying to show people by our behavior? What are we trying to show people in the way that we live in these conversations and apart from them? It has to be that we love God. Uh, And then again, today's sermon will have a lot to say about what that looks like. It looks like a lot more than just saying, I love God. I think growing up Catholic and having friends who are Mormons, it took about a thousand conversations for me to really understand what they're talking about. Because I got to the point where it's like, yeah, the Mormons are so nice. Like, nothing can be wrong with them, right? And yeah. then it was, okay, yeah, it is a little strange what they actually believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is harder. It's harder with religious people than non-religious people. Because the language, they start to use the same words. Love, hope, peace, kindness. Right? And then when you get into the religions that point more toward, they're they're more tangential from Christianity, then you even have the same people. So in Islam, you do have Jesus. You do have Abraham. You do, in Mormonism, you do have Jesus. It's okay. What do they say about Jesus? And is that the same thing that Jesus said about Jesus, that the Bible says about Jesus? Oh, no, no, no. Two different Jesuses, right? It's hard to let go of what I was taught as a kid being completely wrong. Does that make me evil? And why, why would anybody I love you know, kind of keep me astray. This can't be right. And I was defensive about it because I didn't want to feel like I was wrong and not the point of what is right. It's like, I just don't want to be wrong. And I had to push back on Crystal with that a lot. Like, but they're nice. They're nice. Don't you understand how nice they are? And that's the embarrassment feeling we just talked about a minute ago, isn't it? Right. When you expose falsehood, it's embarrassing for the one who possesses falsehood. And the only comfort that we can offer is, I know, I've been there too. Yeah. <laughs> right? I have lots of falsehood that gets exposed by the truth of God too. I know that feeling of shame. And the good news is, God doesn't leave you in that feeling of shame. He, he never looks at that shame and says, nope, sorry, too bad, tough, too much, too much shame, just go. Right? He brings us to himself and makes us whole. Uh, and we'll talk about these individual religions and worldviews later in this class and some specific things that that highlight that tension. I feel like it took a thousand talks for me to come around. So you're talking about you know being that ambassador at work, and even if it doesn't work that time, somebody who really wanted it, it took me a lot. A it's, a, it's a slow drip. It's still, Part still of your is. family, too. I mean, you love your family, right? So it's even harder with... Third purpose in having these conversations, it honors the Great Commission. Uh, These conversations 
are evangelistic conversations. I don't find a ton of value in the distinction between evangelism, apologetics, conversations about faith, whatever terms you want to use. I don't find a bunch of value in the distinctions. Speaking truth into falsehood for the purpose of glorifying God and not self, for the purpose of illuminating truth and not putting other people down, these honor the Great Commission. This is how God's truth goes out into all the world and makes disciples under his power. People put up smoke screens. All all of us, when confronted with our own uh, errors, we put up smoke screens well, hey, go fight with this thing over here. Go, you got to answer this question over there. You just try to, my mom used to call it the confuse and conquer method when I was a kid and she caught me doing something wrong and she would ask me for a clear explanation. She said my method was always confuse and conquer. The more details I could give her, the more different directions I could come at the, finally she would just say, fine, fine, whatever, it's fine. Just bury the body. Uh, the smoke screens are what we do when we start to realize or we start to fear that our falsehood is being exposed. We start to see that something we thought was true may not actually be true, and we feel that pressure of that attack. And so we put up smoke screens, and these conversations are for the clearing the smoke away, exposing the reality of the situation. And that's why part of the Great Commission is not just in the individual conversations toward conversion, but it's actually also in a broader cultural context of we need Christians in academia teaching true philosophical principles and tearing down the philosophical lies of this world. We need Christians in in art and filmmaking and music so that what goes out in the world of entertainment is true and beautiful and right and exposes the lies of of the world. You, You need this this uh, uh, think of a fan just blowing across the globe trying to clear off or beat back some of that smoke that the evil one is is puffing out Um, what people believe what the bible teaches how people are inconsistent these are things that need to be a constant drip of the great commission not just we pay money to support missionaries going out into countries that are not ours you see that that it's, it's all part of this. It, it is, you'll hear people talk about this different ways and some of the ways we mess up a lot of this stuff, but an idea of a cultural mandate, there are ways where that can be problematic, but the heart of that thing is very true, which is it's all gods. It's all gods. Every, every non-sinful vocation belongs to God. Every non-sinful entertainment activity belongs to God. Literature and music and movies and work and play, it all belongs to God. And so Christians blow away the smoke that Satan puts over all of those areas that say, no, no, this is what this should look like. This is what's right. This is what makes it good. And that's all lies. It's all lies. All the good things in the world that Satan has perverted by sin, part of the Great Commission is blowing that smoke away so that we can see clearly what is true and what is perversion. And then the result of that, and this is what shocks most people about Christianity that they don't realize, the result of blowing that away, that smoke away, is that your life is filled with more, not less. 
More things become lawful for you. More things become appropriate before God, not less. People think Christianity is the religion of you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. That's not true. That's the smoke that Satan has put around all of these things. That's why Paul says all things are lawful. Because when that smoke blows away and you see the core, the seed of truth for which God made that thing, then that thing becomes lawful for you. You don't use it for sin. You use it for the glory of God. That is incredibly freeing and opening uh, as opposed to, I think, the way many of us who at least grew up in the church or around the church, um, it it was not that. (laughs) It's what other thing can we put off limits today? And that's not the way God does this. So to me, I see that all wrapped up in the Great Commission. It's also done a great job of making Christians compartmentalize so that we don't mm. blow it out into the world. We keep it to what we do on Sunday mornings. And then... Chris, yeah. Well, and even just Christian culture, yeah. right? Christian movie studios, Christian books. It's, no, write a great book that's true and about God's truth. That's a great book. Right? You know the problem with Christian movie studios? They stink. <laughs> and their movies are no good. <laughs> yeah, they're not any good. <laughs> Make a great movie instead. And when your great movie, made with excellence, speaks God's truth into God's world, that glorifies God. That's the kind of movie that Christians want to get behind. Um, and the Christian movie studios, it's not that we want to burn them down. We just want them to make better movies. All right, fourth... Um, these conversations, why bother? They're good for the speaker. So if you're the one having this conversation, these conversations are good for you. What in your life ever gives you better clarity about your own beliefs than having to say them out loud and think through them carefully as you say them to someone else who might be subject to misunderstanding, who doesn't agree with you. When you talk with somebody who agrees with you, they nod along with you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you can be a little less precise because they're nodding along. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yay, Jesus, right? It's all good. Now have that conversation with somebody who thinks you're wrong. And you're more thoughtful. You're more clear. You're more precise. You think about Scripture. That's good for you. Um, it, it forces you to think more carefully about the faith and about what you believe. In these conversations, you're not allowed to defend some kind of vague theism. I think in a lot of conversations that we have with Christians and with other believers, you could take just the words of our conversation and extract them and put them on a page and read the page and you'd have no idea you were talking about Christianity. Now, some of that's just, we're allowed to assume from one another that we're talking about the Christian Bible and the Christian God. And I'm not saying that that's a problem, but we're allowed a real kind of vague theism when we talk to one another. That's, I catch myself praying that a lot for people when I can't think of what else to pray. God, I just pray that God would be with them. Wait, what do I want God to do? God is with them. He never leaves nor forsakes them. What do I want God to do? God, give them a sense that you are with them because they feel alone and put down. Oh, okay, that's, a, that's, that's better. Not the first one's wrong. The second one's better. It's more clear. It's more accurate. Um, I feel like talking to kids helps me with that. Yeah, yeah. Teaching anything. I'm pretty bad about Teaching anything to anyone helps make it more clear. Yeah, and kids are a great source for that. Because you're the nodders. <laughs> but if I'm talking to somebody like at work, but I, I'm not good at it. I'm really not. And that kind of keeps me from doing it, which isn't right. But I feel like when I have to explain it to a kid, there's a little more leeway. And then I really do get more specific. And they ask good questions, and it helps me with what I believe. And, and 
with one another as well. When somebody is going through something where you want to encourage them in godliness. So uh, Andrew has some issue in his life right now that would be a real cause for anxiety. And so I am trying to, as a Christian friend, comfort him and equip him with God's word and with good thoughts to not give in to this anxiety. What am I doing to myself? I'm preaching to myself. I am, I am, as I say those words to him, I'm thinking, well, you hypocrite, then why are you so anxious about this other thing? And that is good for me. That kind of guilt is good for me. Uh, that, that is a big part of the iron sharpening iron, I think. It's not just what the other person says to you. It's having to hear yourself in what you say to them. And when that's the word of God, when that's wisdom, you start to see the places in your life where you are not heeding that wisdom. Sermon preparation has been the best thing that's ever happened for my Christian life. Because the rest of you have to work harder than I do to be in the scriptures, to force yourself to be in the scriptures every week. When you're tired and you don't feel like it, it is easy to say, I'm going to skip the Bible reading, not today. And you could go a whole week or weeks or months where it's not today. Don't want to engage with the scriptures today. Too much going on. Too tired. Not feeling it. Feel spiritually dry. That's a normal part of the Christian life. And I feel that too sometimes. But do you know when I feel it, what the answer is? Too bad. Because you're going to have to stand up in that pulpit on Sunday and say something. So even when I don't want to, even when I don't feel good, if there were any way I could call in somebody from the bullpen to do that, I would do it. I can't. I actually have to do it. So it's this amazing opportunity for me to be forced into the discipline of engaging with the scriptures. And so our conversations should have that effect on our lives as well. That is, we think about having godly conversations with one another. As you think more crisply, Uh, not just with I'm going to use a vague term theological equals we're in Christian maturity Christian maturity is a huge spectrum Uh, in this church we're on a we're in different places on that spectrum but a relatively narrow part on that spectrum after all we're coming to this church right so we're going to church at all we've committed to Christianity we're coming to this type of work like it's just there's so much about this where the spectrum we're all pretty narrow so you look at the most sanctified person in this church whoever you think that is which I understand it's not me but whoever you look at in this church and you think that's the most sanctified person we got you're not so far from them as you think you're not so close conversations with one another that's great that's that's that iron sharpening iron but even when you're having the conversation with a christian newbie with somebody who just totally lacks wisdom and doesn't doesn't know they don't hate god they just don't know anything how can those conversations be useful to you, right? How can you, as you say those things, you get more clarity. I do believe that. And even though I wouldn't expect them at this point in their Christian maturity to make the jump from that belief to this way of thinking or behavior, I really should. I really should live free from anxiety, no matter what the cause is, because everything I just told this guy about God's sovereignty is true. That's, that's why those conversations are good for us. And then lastly, these conversations are good for the church. Uh, as I mentioned, iron sharpening iron. Um, 
we need to have these conversations, faith conversations with one another. We need that iron sharpening iron effect because it's, the world is increasingly educated against Christianity, rationality, truth. You're not dealing with, when you go out into that world, you're dealing with some group of people who just haven't considered eternal, meaningful things at all. But even those people are growing up in that smoke we mentioned before that just poisons them even to the very idea of truth. The very idea that someone other than themselves is sovereign over their lives. This idea, we act like it's remarkable today when you look in the pagan world and you see somebody who says, I just have to live for something bigger than myself. Like, wow, yeah, you finally, like, there's so much of the world that hasn't even come to that conclusion. So much of the world thinks I do need to live for myself. So we've got to have iron sharpening iron in here because the world in which we're having to defend our faith is an increasingly educated and anti-logical world. And so there are senses in which the average faith conversation that we have today will be tougher than the conversations of Paul going into a place with polytheism. And all he's got to show these people who do believe in God, do believe in objective truth, is that Christ is the truth. That's not easy. can only be done by the Spirit of God and the power of God. I'm not saying it's easy. But we're going into the burned over districts. We're going into the places where people have heard about Jesus and Christianity from the day they were born. And many of those people will say that they are. And now you're having to tell them not just that what they believe is wrong, but that their definition of what they believe is wrong. This thing they think is Christianity is a false religion. That is a very difficult context in which to minister and disciple. Um, There's great studies on this over the last couple of decades is that the average person uh, in the average evangelical church is not an Orthodox Christian believing the Bible and what's true and is also not like a crass pagan unbeliever. No, they live in this bizarre middle world of this moralistic therapeutic deism. There is a God and what God wants is for me to do good so that I'll feel good. That's it. And that's what you're fighting against. That's a little bit harder than somebody who says there is no God. Somebody who says there is no God, I can engage pretty quickly to show that either they don't really want to honestly engage in this conversation or they will come to admit they're wrong. Or at least they should not be so sure. The person who says, of course there's a God and God is good and God wants me to do good. And then when I do good, I feel good. That's a much, much harder person to disciple and to undo uh, the wrong that they've taken up. You think about all of these um, cultural and church trends outside the church and inside. So you think outside the church, uh, the Da Vinci Code, right? which the Da Vinci Code is a, is a piece of entertainment, a piece of fictional literature. Who cares? It's a story. It's fun. It's Mr. Whatever. I'm not, I'm not complaining about that. But there are people who get way further down that path, right? Of the, yeah, yeah, the church did cover up the truth. And yeah, yeah, we do have the hidden gospels in the caves with the scrolls and the... It's like, you really need to read a book, a real book, <laughs> a better book. Uh, uh, inside the church, the prayer of Jabez. 
any of the health and wealth prosperity stuff, anything Joel Osteen's ever written, anything that comes out of Joyce Meyer's mouth, that is the inside the church version of the Da Vinci Code. That is people took things tangentially related and using the language of Christianity and morphed it into a religion of their own making that is this moralistic therapeutic deism. God is, God is good, God wants you to do good, and when you do good, you will feel good. That's it. That's the sum total of their religion. That religion is not Christianity. And yet, it is everywhere, inside the church and outside the church. So, we need these conversations. The church needs these conversations so that we begin to be able to engage these falsehoods more critically in the technical term to see what is wrong with them, to see what is wrong about them. What we're afraid of is that if we do that, we become obnoxious. We're the person who goes out in the world and says, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and all this is wrong and that movie's wrong and this book is wrong and it's all wrong and I'm the only one who's right. But the answer to that is not, don't have these conversations. The answer to that is don't be obnoxious. Because God is right. And everything that is against God is wrong. It's not about me. Whether I believe it or not, God is still true. So I can go into the world with confidence that things that set themselves up as opposed to God are wrong. How I'm going to help people see that, how I'm going to treat those people in those conversations and in the life that takes place around those conversations, that's critically important, and we'll talk more about that. But we've got to be able to evaluate biblical truth or dangerous errors in the things that we're hearing and seeing. Questions about that while I refill my coffee cup? One of the things I've been surprised about is that it's actually much easier to go to an unbeliever and tell them that their entire view of the world is wrong. And they'll receive it in a way that they'll still talk to you than it is to go to a Christian brother or sister and tell them that Jesus' calling might not be the best book for them to read. But the response against you will actually be no. much harsher from the, the person who <laughs> calls himself a Christian than it is from the unbeliever by making a much stronger claim against which is why the peace, peace churches who just say, well, we're all Christians here, it's all yeah we don't we don't get hung up in the details right we're not we're about Jesus and not about the details okay what about the details that are about Jesus can we be about those can we be about the the truth of Christ and I agree with you anything you ever hear me criticize one of these authors for that is preference and not about the truth of Christ call me on it I really I don't want to be in the business of saying I don't like the way this person wrote this book or I, that's not my view I'm talking about big foundational issues here. But it all comes down to that same, I'm okay and you're okay, not because I judge myself by God's standard, but because I've created a new standard, and by that standard, I've decided I'm okay and you're okay. And I mean, that, that is all of these books come down to that same thing. And what happens, to Jake's point, when you try to make that point in the church, you will be attacked. This is happening all the time. That's why the internet is not particularly good for the church. I probably could have just stopped there. The internet is not particularly good. Um, But you're seeing this, you know, um, Beth Moore is under attack right now. 
as she ought to be for her refusal to speak biblical truth. But now the, the discussion within the denominational church world is not about what Beth Moore did or didn't say. It's about what her accusers said and how differently they should have said it. How much more grace they should have had. How, how, what the right venue or context would have been. What the, and that will always happen. When you speak truth to someone, you will be attacked. And if they can't attack you for the truth you spoke... They will attack you for the way, the time, the place, the words, whatever, in which you said it. And when you say, what is the godly way I could have said this godly truth to that person? Give me how I should have done it instead, and I will do it that way next time. Their answer is, I don't know. I don't know, but not the way you did it. (laughs) No. Truth brings divisions. Jesus said he came to bring a sword, and it was on this particular point. It brings divisions. And for those of you with peacemaking hearts, you want to imagine a world where there is no division. And many times you are right when you say, you just created unnecessary division. What you just did was not necessary. It was not for an important enough thing. That was not good. And those of us who create divisions everywhere we go need to receive that with humility and say, you're right. I was looking for a fight. I picked that fight and that fight was about me, not about truth. But there will also be times where the peacemaker says, you shouldn't have caused that division. And the answer is, yes, I should have. That is exactly the division I should have caused. If there are any word you can give me that would have been nicer and still true, tell me and I'll say it next time. If there's any, shouldn't have been with this person in the room, it should have been one-on-one, I'll give that some consideration and, and try that next time. But truth will cause division. There's no getting around that. And to me, one of the biggest yellow flags in a situation that I'm not a part of, when I see division and contention come up over a biblical issue, is when one person is arguing truth, And the other person is arguing process errors. This used to happen in our denomination all the time. It would be adultery. I mean, it would be black and white stuff. And you've got one person arguing the black and white. Adultery. And you've got the other person arguing process errors. I didn't have the chance to call a third witness. And subsection 5B guarantees me three witnesses. You should be a lawyer. Okay. That's what we're going to argue here. And I, I'm a big process person. I love process. is very important to me. I think process protects us from our sinful nature. I like process. But when you're arguing process and you're unable to set aside process for a moment and just argue truth, uh, you're usually, you got a real problem. You're usually not on the right side of that argument. Ultimately, a sinner convicted by truth doesn't care about the process that got them to that realization. So I I saw someone this weekend have a situation where the person went about confronting them with their sin in the worst way possible. The timing was wrong. They didn't have all their facts straight. They were wrong about just some of the ancillary stuff. It was a very ungracious accusation. They had assumed motive 
you did this for this reason. And that wasn't the person's motive at all. Everything they did in this accusation was wrong. But the person didn't argue procedure. The person said, you know what? The effect was the same. The behavior was there. The behavior caused offense. That's what I need to apologize for and repent of. Then you can go back and talk process at some future time, just brother to brother on, hey, here's a better way to approach this. Or, you know, but the, the Christian heart is one that's humble enough that when it's confronted with truth, even in suboptimal circumstances, it can respond in kind. If you have decided that you're going to wait to admit wrongdoing or to grant forgiveness until the person presents it to you in the perfect form, God is not pleased with your heart. Right? We, that, that's procedural violations that we're looking for. And God's looking at, at sin, at real sin.